Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You know, I one of my professors, Richard Ray, in seminary, said that he did this Bible study with a group of men that um, they wanted. There was a group of guys. This was in Tennessee, in like this, I think this 1960s, and they said, you know, we want to learn more about Christianity and the Bible. And he said the mm-hmm. be- the best theologian in the crew just about knew John three sixteen. I said, well, guys, what we're going to do? We're going to meet at my house seven a.m. every Tuesday for breakfast, and we're going to start with the most practical books of the Bible I can think of: Numbers and Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, and he said they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so our first lection or reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, and it's it's kind of a sad reading. Yeah. Here we have Moses who does not get to go into the promised land. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's not only just any reading out of Deuteronomy. It's the very last chapter of Deuteronomy. It's the very last thing said in Deuteronomy. Ends the book before the next thing that happens is Joshua, you know? So it's a really poignant reading to sum up the conclusion of that whole episode, the whole, if you will, the whole 40 years of transition from Egypt into the wilderness. So do you think like the lesson practically is if God says, speak to the rock, you just don't, you know, you don't add, you don't, you you don't do any embellishments. I mean, you just speak to the rock. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this whole thing of, uh, you know, him not being able to go into the promised land was all about what happened in Numbers 20, I believe, and where he struck the rock twice. There's a couple of episodes of striking the rock in the book of Numbers, and we find it also in, in Exodus. But the, uh, the sad thing about that is there was a, a very symbolic picture in the first striking of the rock. God would go before them. He said, you know, I will stand before the rock and you strike the rock. So it's very emblematic of uh, the, the, the suffering that Christ would have to take in order to gush forth the water of life. It's very, you know, the picture of it is very amazing. But then you get to the second one and Moses' anger takes over, I think. And that's that's the, the setting for his being uh, un, unable to go into the promised land. So the is the is the lesson here like um clinical distance from the people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but well, it's that... it's interesting though, these are also not the people. It's interesting because they mourn him, but all the people who were previously sort of rebellious have died. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of things have happened. I think that um you know, at the end of Moses' life despite, you know, his his chastisement by God because striking the rock twice and, you know, letting his anger get out of control. Um, despite that, God did show him the culmination of his work. Um, and so he was able to see the land. There's various ways to look at that. You know, he's standing on the top of this mountain 
And uh, one commentator says he's moving counterclockwise around to see everything in the description. But so, so he couldn't probably see every single bit of it, but he saw a great deal of it. And because of that, he, he could kind of see the culmination of his life's work. I think an interesting uh, interesting maybe lesson, it's hard to know whether this is uh, something for, for to preach on or not, but is the fact that all the way through especially the lectionary text we've read over the last few weeks, what we see is Moses being the uh, consummate mediator, the consummate intercessor for the people. He He's always interceding, and you can see those many passages where God relents. You know, I'm sure that lots of people read into that a lot about the nature of God. I would just see it as something of God. God is demonstrating for us how he wants us to address him. He wants us to plead with him. He wants us to cry out, even argue with him according to his covenant promises. And that's what Moses does. And God relents from all these uh, opportunities where God is going to to destroy the people. You know, that has happened several weeks in a row. But you get here and, and you don't have that. At the end, you know, Moses does not plead with God. You know, you could you could imagine Moses pleading with God and saying, oh, Lord, you know, you told me I would bring them into the land and you promised this and so forth. But he doesn't do it. It's like Moses has finally accepted that his will, the, the will of God. Um, Errol Calland in one of the commentary series, the Expositor's Bible Commentary, says the painful, difficult, formative years of the new nation's experience in the deserts were past. The promised land lay before him, but his mission was over. His desire Desire had led him to plead again and again that the Lord would relent and let him enter that land. But this final report of, of the Lord's decree does not mention Moses' prayer. He had at last quietly acquiesced to the will of God. Had he bowed to the inevitable, the certainty everyone faces, the end of his pilgrimage, that end had come. I think there's something there uh, of Moses' uh, acceptance of that will of God. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. It's interesting in Gulliver's Travels, when he gets to this kingdom named Strolberg, um, or actually he gets to the kingdom um, Lugnog, and this name Strolberg is given to these people who are seemingly normal, but they're actually immortal. Um, but they continue aging. Everyone wants immortality, but they, we imagine when we want immortality, we want it like our youthful vigor. But these people are they continue aging uh, and they never die. And they're all recognized by a red dot above their left eyebrow. And so they're normal people until the age of 30 and then they are dejected. Um, and then when they reach 80, they become legally dead. <laughs> like they suffer from all these ailments like loss of eyesight, loss of hair. Um, their marriages all collapse and they're forbidden to own property. And, and in it, Swift writes, as soon as they have completed the term of 80 years, they are looked on as dead in law. Their heirs immediately succeed to their estates. Only a small pittance is reserved for their support. And the poor ones are maintained at the public charge. After that period, they are held incapable of any employment or trust or profit. They cannot purchase lands or take leases. Neither are they allowed to be witnesses in any cause, either civil or criminal, not even for the decision of uh, meets and bounds. Uh, because otherwise, as avarice is the necessary consequence of old age, those immortals would in time become proprietors of the whole nation and engross the civil power, which for want of abilities to manage must end in the ruin of the public. So, acceptance of death. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think uh, there's a, I read a couple of commentaries on the passage and and one of them, uh, the Word Biblical Commentary series, Dwayne Christensen, he made this uh, interesting remark. He said that, that Moses died as decreed by Yahweh, that is Yahweh's command, and literally it's at the mouth of, and there's a Midrashic interpretation that Moses died uh, from a kiss from God. And so there's a Jewish idiom called death by kiss, which refers to sudden, painless death in old age. Uh, the text goes out of its way to make clear that Moses was not failing in his health, but rather God had simply decreed his death. And his death also has an interesting kind of symbolic uh, sense in that Moses lived for, for 120 years. So that's, of course, three times 40. So 40 you know years as generation. So he lived three generations, and of course, we can kind of mark those out nice and neatly, the first 40 being in Egypt, the next 40 being out in the wilderness uh, you know, with the Midianites, and then the last 40 leading the people of, of Israel. The three, would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? On to the book of Thessalonians. So here we've got Paul, maybe the earliest letter Paul wrote, um, talking about his own kind of struggle and suffering in Philippi and talking about um, his actually bond with the Thessalonians. I, I love this. Um, the, the, my favorite part of First Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8 is, so deeply we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves or our lives as well, because you have become very dear to us. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we started reading uh, First Thessalonians last week, I believe, in the lecture. And I don't know if anybody covered this in your discussion last week, but I always like to go back to, uh, in these epistles, if there's a reference in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, it's Acts 17, where they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This is, of course, very much what Paul does. And he's there, and he went, according to custom, Paul's custom, he uh, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous and, of course, formed a mob. And this is, you know, this is the thing. So it's interesting. And this, this passage also leads on to one of the most famous statements. When they formed that mob, I should just go ahead and finish this thought out. They went to the house. They were attacking the house of Jake and, and uh, Jake, sorry, they attacked the house of Jason. And when they did not find him, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men have upset the world, have come here also. And Jason welcomed them. And they're acting contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. I like the older version says, there is another king, one Jesus. <laughs> another king. So this is the kind of foundation of this relationship, uh, a turmoil fight public you know address, you know issues uh being dragged before uh, roman authorities and so forth and so you can imagine how endearing that relationship was after going through such incredible trials and this is what you see in the passage uh for this week the this his their love their deep love for them if this was in the age of social media paul would say i went to this second temple judaism discussion group and <laughs> on the sabbath and three times posted <laughs> And, yes. Uh, yeah. And and everybody and I was uh, kicked out of the group three times. <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. Yes. Yeah. They were, they were pretty kicked out, but again, from this passage comes one of those immortal statements out of, uh, out of the book of Acts. You know, there is another King Jesus is what they were proclaiming. And it kind of helps us see that the message of the gospel for the first century, at least was not that Jesus can save you merely, but that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And, uh, this, this becomes, you know, a challengeable kind of statement to the Jews and becomes a problematic by the end of the first century for the Romans, of course, as well. They said they would They stone you when you're trying to go home They'll stone you when you're there all alone But I would not feel so all alone Everybody must get stoned Yeah, and I mean, that kind of leads us into... Uh, quite nicely, the gospel reading, because here, you know, the, we've got this series of exchanges, which anybody, right, uh, I've said this a few times during, as we've gone through these passages, anybody that's done any teaching knows the difference between the kind of questions that are meant to elicit information and the kinds that are meant right. to embarrass the teacher. <laughs> and these are all these like series of everybody. It's, it's funny that like, um, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. What could get the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Pharisees all together? Well, we all hate Jesus. We can agree on that. Let's just start <laughs> at the, at the base level. We have different identity politics, but we all hate Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Well, and here we have, you know, the first verse of the text that we're reading is uh, verse 34, Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, <laughs> they gathered together. <laughs> so now they're going to take, you know, oh, these Sadducees, they're weak. You know, we're going to take them out, though. You know, the, now they're, they're, they're rising to the occasion, it sounds like. <laughs> so, Greg, I know you a little bit and I know your family. So let me just ask you, which daughter is your favorite? Oh, yes. Uh, I would say at the moment, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no. oh, I, I really don't have favorites. I, I really don't. But that's uh, that's the nature of the question, right? It's sort of like saying like, to, and maybe you, you probably do. Everybody probably has favorite relationships, or but you, you we ought not to like our finitude and our fallenness. But ideally, uh, we don't. And and I think that kind of question is actually the kind of question. I ask, well, which commandments the best? Mm -hmm, because right. if he ans if he picks one. To the that, well, see, he's relative. He's a relativist. He's the guy that sort of you know is saying, well, really, these are the only ones that count. So he's a liberal. Yeah. He's a heretic. Right. And Jesus' answer is pretty brilliant. Yeah. Well, he's. I think that this is a you know again they one of them a lawyer a scribe that's the word ask him a question to test him teacher which commandment is of the, in the law is the greatest. But it's funny because Jesus sometimes really outmaneuvers and outflanks them. Like the, you know, you know, the, the question, this is a few weeks ago, and the answer is, well, tell me, first of all, before I answer that, you know, where is John the Baptist, you know, authority from and his baptism from, you know, <laughs> he just kind of outflanks them on that. But this one is very straightforward. He doesn't do that. He doesn't kind of come up with a maneuver. He just simply says, which, you know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, just that's it. It's a straightforward answer to you know, these Pharisees. I remember hearing Scott McKnight at some presentation, I think at biblical seminary or something saying, the point of the disciplines isn't the disciplines. And we're saying that like, if everybody loved God and one another, there would be no need for spiritual disciplines. Like th th that there's this, 
that these things are not, and, and this is so often what humans be, human beings do to every kind of means, right? Like we make means ends. And so mm. what, what happens is, is Jesus is putting into relief, look, the, the Torah is, is, is a means. Like the end is loving God and all that God has made, including, uh, you know, yourself, <laughs> like your neighbors, yourself, the creation. So, like, I mean, he's getting it. He he reframes the question in a way that gets at the heart of the matter, right? Like, yeah, yeah. He summarizes. I think I think the best way to see it is the way many of the Reformed catechisms and uh, especially catechisms will say, you know, what's the summary of the law? And this is the summary of the law: you love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that's it. If you do that, you've covered everything else that God's moral will uh, has been uh, revealing. You know, that's the that's the duty of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what's the duty of man? And it's to obey the moral will of God. And so where is it summarily comprehended? Well, in the Ten Commandments, and what's what's a summary of that? This, uh, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So is this like what everybody should do during every church controversy? All right, let's just argue it this way. How does your position help us love God better and love one another better? Which position well, well, is the more Well, that's not my loving? argument. My argument is you're wrong. that's the point that's the point of the argument i'm superior to you intellectually (laughs) well the you know the i come from the reformed uh context in terms of uh reformed churches and i've been part of a couple and uh the great great uh lecture that was done uh some years ago now by john frame professor at reformed theological seminary called the machin's warrior children uh if you haven't Check that, that out. That piece out. is fantastic. And Yeah, and what he points out is there have been all these controversies in the conservative, Presbyterian, and Reformed world, and every time a controversy comes up, they, everyone acts like it's at the heart of the gospel, you know, but it's not, you know, they're not at the heart of the gospel, but everyone acts like it, and they treat this in the most, you know, profound way, and it's just an important point to realize if you're in a tradition where there's a high sense of duty doctrinally that one of the prevailing sins, I would say, of Reformed people like me are focusing on that instead of the simple thing of loving God and loving neighbor and then you know putting our, our other ideas someplace on the shelf a little bit lower than that, you know, uh, or a lot lower than that in some cases. Yeah, I have a friend, Barry Anson George, who did a dissertation with William Abraham on denominationalism. And his theory on denominations ultimately wound up being something like what denominations are, are groups of people that make non-essentials essentials for the sake of living together. And I think there's something to that. And as long as we realize that's what we're doing, uh, there's probably space for that. Yeah, I I feel that there's more uh, love across denominational lines in my experience today. Um, you know, I think that's uh, that's definitely been something we've called, tried to cultivate in our own church. But I, I, I think the community of people that I'm part of, I would say, uh, there's a strong sense of wanting to unite and serve with with folks that differ with us theologically. We and we, of course, in our regular worship service take time to pray for churches in our area that are uh, very different than us, including Roman Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches and so forth. So it's important for us to kind of uh, exemplify that love for neighbor across denominational lines in in such simple ways as just acknowledging uh, the presence of others and the presence of, of other brethren that we are not on the same page with on everything. 
And so it's important for us to do that. There's an interesting part of this that's interesting how this text moves. After the the first section on the commandments, uh, verse 41, moves on to something that I think is very theologically important. If I could move on to that. I don't know if you have yeah, more to say. About and, and, and in Psalm 110, right, isn't this one of the or the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Yes, yes it is. It's... Um, it's in the New Testament more than 20 times um, in, in a, an allusion or a direct quotation. Um, I've got some statistics on that somewhere that I could look up. But it's, it's yeah, it's very cited because what it is is the, the, the apostles, as soon as Christ was raised and, and ascended, they used this verse to say, this is the Christ. Um, this is in Peter's first sermon you know, on Pentecost, it shows up over and over again in the epistles. You'll see the phrase, you know, at the right hand of God everywhere uh, in the in the epistles, because this was a demonstration that Jesus was who he said he was, and the apostles referred to that so often. And here Christ is using this in order to do a bit of a response to the Pharisees. You know, they ask him a question, he answers it in a very direct way. Now he says to them, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And so then he pulls out this quote. And this quote is meant to rattle them because it doesn't quite work, right? Well, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord? How, how is it David's son calls David Lord? <laughs> or how is it that by David the Spirit call the son, his son Lord, right? Yeah. And by the exactly. Spirit. It's interesting because it, maybe there's a, the bibliology of Jesus, you know, like David speaking by the Spirit does it. Yeah, I think that this is such an important uh, psalm, Psalm 110, because it really gives a picture of the kingdom. And depending on you know where you are in your eschatology, this this can be read in different ways. Uh, but I think that uh, you know the I remember years ago when I was working through eschatological stuff, somebody handed me a book by Alva J. McLean. I think he was I think he was associated with uh, Philadelphia College of the Bible, but I'm not sure. But he was a dispensational uh, teacher who wrote a long book about the mediatorial kingdom of Christ. And he's arguing, of course, that this can't happen until this, after the second coming in the premillennial version of the millennial kingdom. And this passage becomes one of the critical passages to prove this. But of course, the problem is it's quoted 20 times in the New Testament to say it's a present reality. Yeah. So it's difficult to maintain that. I I come from a, a point of view of what I would call post-millennial point of view, which is the idea that the kingdom came when Christ came. It uh, has expanded, and it will continue to expand, and there's a victory that's going to happen in terms of uh, transformation of nations uh, by the gospel. And this this passage is what really persuaded me of it, to be honest. It was looking at Psalm 110 and how often it was cited in the New Testament, the, sit at my right hand until I make an, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, is Christ at the right hand of God? There's no question about that. That's stated so many times in the New Testament. So what's he doing now? Well, he's making his enemies a footstool. And of course, he does that in different ways. Sometimes it is judgment, but oftentimes it is gospel victory. It is the transformation of people. And uh, so this is a really important passage to my own in my own experience. But also here we have uh, a kind of comical note at the end of the, the citation um, after he questions them about it in verse 46, no one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. He, Leslie, he silenced them. 
<laughs> yeah, Leslie Newbegin, the great you know missionary and theologian, said that you know the gospel doesn't fit into any existing plausibility structure. It always blows. And here are people that spent all their time studying the Hebrew scriptures, you know, our Old Testament, and Jesus gives them a question that blows up the reality. And so it, it, it can never be, once I understand, I believe, right? It always, with Augustine, has to be faith seeking understanding. Yeah, that's right. That's Greg, right. thanks for doing this, man. And best okay. luck in your preaching on Sunday. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or... Pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today. And thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fair be. Thee-